We're going to pick up in verse 21, which is sort of a difficult thing to do because that's actually part of the previous thought. So we'll get to that in a moment. But hear the word of our God. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as the church, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Let's pray. Father, we uh, come to these words from your word. And at points we will wrestle with what it calls us to do. We will wrestle and seek to find some other way that surely your word doesn't say what we think it says. We ask that your spirit would be gracious to us this morning to understand what it is your word says to believe that it is for our good, to trust you to do that which is right, and to grant us the grace to walk in agreement with your word. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. Amen. I think it was really the beginning of the end of Pat Benatar's career. It was the song, Love is a Battlefield. She had gone from really cool rock with the leather and everything else, to suddenly going a bit pop. And it was the beginning of the end for me. But the song itself talks about something that Scripture really addresses. And we looked at two weeks ago from Genesis chapter 3, how this marriage relationship, which was once so good, has now been become a battlefield, a struggle for control between the husband and the wife. And part of the curse was that that continued. For the, the wife's desire would be for her husband, meaning she would desire to rule over him just as sin desired to rule over Cain in the very next chapter. And that he, unfortunately, would rule over her. And so marriage, because of sin, had become a very ugly thing in a lot of ways. It often continues to be this struggle for control that is ruled by fear that this other person will do wrong to me. We've got some good news. 
And the good news is that gospel-shaped marriages are marked by sacrificial love and submission. And really, that is good news. For what is happening is that in the gospel, when Jesus redeems men and women, he also redeems them as husbands and wives, and he begins to redeem the institution of marriage and to recreate it to fulfill its original design and purpose. It starts in the here and in the now. So let's look at that this morning. Let's think about that. Let's be challenged by that. First off, with the idea that spirit-empowered submission recognizes where God places us. And to get that, we have to go a few verses earlier in all of this. We have to start, essentially, with verse 18, where Paul starts off with this command. Two commands. Do not be drunk on wine, okay? So no drunkenness. But instead be filled with the Spirit. Okay, that's the second command. No drunkenness, but instead be filled with or controlled by God's Spirit. And then he lays out, and it's hard in the English, because all of this is one sentence. The main verb is do, is be filled. And then we have a series of, of participles that explain what it looks like when you're filled with the Spirit. And that starts off with, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so, worship is part of a sign that we're filled with the Spirit. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. So it's not just the the mouthing of words, but it's arising up from one's heart, the joy that is there. Always giving thanks to, to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so gratitude is another sign of one who is filled with God's Spirit. And then he gets to the one that we probably wish wasn't there because that's actually connected again to being filled with the Spirit, another parsable, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so submission to proper authority is to be seen as a sign that one is filled with God's Spirit. And the first place he talks about it is marriage. And so being filled with the Spirit leads to this whole submitting to one another. There is the commandment to be Filled, and there is this idea that then then you will submit, be subject to. And what does that word that we find mean? It's one that's often misunderstood. To be subject or to submit is to be placed under. It's a compound word. Okay, To be placed under or to be appointed under. And the idea here is almost like an organization, organizational chart. Okay? Most of you who live and work at places, you are familiar with the organizational chart, even if it's not on the wall, right? You know who you report to, don't you? You know who your boss is, and you know if someone reports to you, you know who they are. That's the idea that's here, that, that there is a hierarchy, that there is a structure within every organization, and people have been appointed to particular places within the structure of the organization. And that is what the word to be subject to or submit to points to. Okay? Paul points them, the Ephesians, to the reality that the church has been placed under Christ so that they might understand the reality of wives being placed under their husbands. And it's interesting because... Paul does not use a command there. It's not a command, be subject to. 
He, it's a, a basic ordinary verb that would say he's pointing to a fact. He's using the relationship of Christ and the church to instruct them something about marriage. Because marriage is meant to reveal the relationship of Christ and the church to people who need to see it, who aren't ordinarily a part of it. And so Paul declares that the church has been appointed under Christ. He is its head. She is the body. And the same way it functions in marriage that, like it or not, and a lot of times we guys don't like this, um, he says that husbands are the heads of their own wives. Now that's very, we've got to listen to that part too. Paul is not saying women are subject to men. He's not saying that. He tells, He says that wives are subject to their own husbands. And so he's not teaching a superiority of men over women. What he is teaching here is that in the marriage relationship, there is an order that God has ordained from the beginning. And we saw a lot of those things in Genesis chapter 1, and I kind of pointed them out as we went along, and, maybe, and this is where it all comes together, in the idea that Adam was created first, that Adam named Eve, that when they sinned, who did God look for first? Adam. And that even though Eve sinned first, how is it that we've all fallen into sin? Adam's sin, not Eve's sin. And so the, this idea of headship in a covenant, which marriage is a covenant, is present. And that's what Paul is bringing out here. He's bringing them back into the truth of what marriage is meant to be because sin has so destroyed it. The word head. It's one that's often twisted around. I've, I've read some of these books trying to get under the weight of this by egali- what we call egalitarians. And what they will say is that head doesn't mean authority. They'll say that head means source. Okay, and so what they're saying is that Christ is the source of the church and that Adam was the source of Eve because God took a rib from Adam. Okay. But is that what is intended here. Well, why don't we go to 1 Corinthians 11? Okay? In verse 3, Paul says, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. And that the head of the woman, and that probably should be translated wife, is man or husband. And the head of Christ is God. Paul is pointing to authority within the structure of the church. And he's saying that the authority within the church is related to authority within Trinity. Although Jesus is of the same essence with the Father, he is not inferior to the Father in any way by nature of his being. He's equal to the Father in terms of the fullness of deity. But he willingly submits to the Father. He has been placed under the authority of the Father, and he willingly resides there to do that which the Father has said. We call that the difference between the ontological trinity and the economic trinity. You don't need to know that. Okay? Unless you want to know it, then that's good, too. 
Wives are not inferior to husbands in terms of their nature. They are just as much made in the image of God, have just as much dignity as their husbands. Just as an employee has just as much dignity as an employer. It's just the nature of a particular relationship that is in view. And when we talk about superior and fear in this context. So we see that Paul is bringing them back to the design that God had made. That husbands are held responsible as the heads of their homes. And what Paul is really getting at here is that God's Spirit helps us to recognize and live in light of that reality. It helps us to live in light of the reality that the church is under Christ because sometimes churches think they can do what they want and not be held responsible. And we see all kinds of weird things going on in some denominations precisely because they have forgotten that Christ is the head of the church and he rules the church by his spirit and his word. And they flee the authority of his word and therefore his spirit. Okay? And so, <clears throat> just as the church must recognize that it is under the authority of Christ, wives recognize or are to recognize and live in light of the fact that they have been placed under the protection and authority of their husbands. Okay? And so part of what this means is that covenant heads bear the burden of the final decision. They're held responsible for what happens in the home. I like that little quote you've got from Tony Evans. Uh, Submission is learning to get out of God's way while he hits your husband. Okay. <laughs> I know a lot of women, uh, particularly in this age, tend to think of uh, submission as a bad thing, but here Paul, you know, Tony Evans is kind of trying to make it a good thing in that, uh, you know, what happens in the home, he's, God is going to hold your husband accountable because he is the head of the home. That does not mean that women are not responsible for their own actions. They are. Even as wives, they're going to be held accountable for what they do. But for husbands, it's tougher. We're not only held accountable for our own actions, but we're we're held accountable for what happens for the whole family. And so if a whole family drifts into serious danger, it's because the husband hasn't been doing what he's supposed to be doing. The father hasn't been doing what he's supposed to be doing. And so we're more accountable than our wives for what happens here. Okay. But this also doesn't mean that wives are weak wimps. I guess if we just looked at this in isolation, we might be tempted to think that. But if we go to Proverbs 31, we see what, what is called the valiant woman. That's probably a better translation than the noble wife. The valiant woman, because she's one courageous person. And she's bold. And she's, I mean, if you think about it, what is she doing? She's taking care of the poor. She's buying and selling property. She's doing things that perhaps some people would have a problem with. Well, how can she do that? She's a woman. So, what matters is that she's doing this under the authority of her husband. 
That's why he, at the end, you know, he and the children rise up and call her blessed. She's doing this under the, under the headship of her husband. She's very involved in providing for the, for the family and making sure that there's money to give to the poor and that they're all going to be warm in winter. So she's not this mindless, weak wimp. Wives are not weak-minded. Wise men seek the counsel or the, the input of their wives. So this doesn't rule out that in any way, shape, or form. I mean, so often I go to my wife. What do you think? Because she's going to see things from a different perspective than me, and sometimes I can fill it out and I can, I, I can see things a little more clearly. But the burden of the final decision rests upon me, not her. And I think she kind of likes that sometimes. Not all the time, but occasionally she likes it because there are tough decisions. And God's going to hold me responsible for those tough decisions. I want to have an analogy here, and that is prayer. What happens in prayer? Jesus invites us to pray. He wants to hear what's upon our hearts, doesn't he? And so a husband should invite his wife to talk with him, to know what's on her heart to know what's important to her, to know what she thinks. But in prayer, who gets the final say? Jesus. And so it is in marriage, the final say is the husband. And he's wise if he listens to his wife. For she may have much wisdom to impart in that. And and we see this as well in in Ephesians 1.22. Again, that word head. Christ is the head of everything for the sake of the church. That's what Paul says. That's the end of his big, long praise section. He's grateful that Christ is the head of everything. He's not just the source of everything. He's the one in authority over everything. And he rules in authority over all of history and every institution and every nation and country and tribe and tongue and language for the good of the church. It's great news. And so the Spirit works in us to help us to recognize and live in God-ordained reality. Now let's go on a little rabbit trail for a moment. Some of you might be thinking this whole thing has been a rabbit trail thus far, but really it hasn't. The rabbit trail is to reject the mistaken myth of mutual submission. When I, I read books that deal with this passage, so often you find this idea that pops up about mutual submission. And I'm sure many of you have kind of heard that and perhaps have even thought it. And it, it, I can see why we're tempted to think it, because as it says, submit to one another, right? Right there, verse 21. Submit to one another. I'll tell you why it doesn't work. Two reasons. One is exegetically, or if you properly understand the text, it doesn't work. Because what Paul goes to do is he begins to explain various ways or, or relationships in which submission is to take place. It's not a blanket statement. He then defines it with the rest of chapter 5 and the first half of chapter 6. And so first, he starts with marriage. And he illustrates this by illustrating uh, with the church in the relationship with Christ. So if we're going to say that husbands and wives should submit to one another, 
What would that mean? Does that mean that Christ is to submit to the church? No, that'd be insanity, wouldn't it? We wouldn't say that, so why would we feel comfortable saying that husbands should submit to their wives? He then goes on to talk about the family relationships. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Okay? That's another one of those places we recognize our, the authority and our place within the family. Are we to then also to turn that on top of itself and say, well, you know, since we believe in mutual submission, parents ought to be submitting to their children. What? Chaos and sanity is going to break out if we believe that, right? But that's mutual submission, isn't it? The third place he goes is he goes to the marketplace, the world of work. And of course, in that day, it was slaves and masters. Today, we're going to talk about employers and employees, because praise God, they're no longer, well, in this country, are slaves and masters. Unfortunately, that will be eliminated in other countries as the gospel spreads. That's still a problem in this world that we don't think about. But what if, if we're we're to say mutual submission, we would have to say, then shouldn't bosses submit to their employees? No. Okay, so if we're going to think through that idea of mutual submission, that we have to apply it to all of those things, not just marriage, and it doesn't work. The second reason why it doesn't work is practically. Think about it for a moment, maybe in this way. Two people at the door. After you. No, 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 after you. No, no, I'm sorry, after you. No one's going to get through the door. No one's going to make a decision. No one's going to move forward. Okay, so this this idea of mutual submission actually ends up being something in which nothing ever takes place. No progress is ever really made, and disobedience results from it. Paul's point is that faith does not undermine authority in relationships. Because God has established those authority relationships. Romans 13. Every authority exists by God. Let me actually read that. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So every authority relationship that exists in our world exists because God has placed it there. Even the bad kings and tyrants, God has put them there. So... Faith does not undermine it, but actually helps us to live within the context God has placed us, the context of authority. So, Attempts to avoid this text through mutual submission really won't work on a couple of grounds. Let's move on. Because really, most of this text is not about wives. If you, uh, and I did this, if you underline that's which he's, he's addressing wives and the church, versus what he, a different color you take and you underline what he's addressing to uh, husbands and Christ, what you find is that most of it is in the ink of husbands and Christ. Very little is actually said about wives in terms of what they should be doing. Most of it is about husbands. Happy Father's Day, guys. Okay. Spirit-empowered sacrificial love reveals the saving work of Jesus. 
That's what most of this text is about. Sacrificial love, empowered by the Spirit, revealing the saving work of Jesus. Most of this, as I said, addresses the role of the husband. And we see that where wives are not commanded explicitly to submit to husbands, we find that husbands are explicitly commanded to love their wives. In the first case, they're commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And in the second case, they're commanded to love their wives even as they love their own bodies. And so, whichever it is, guys, pick whichever one you want. you got to love them. Okay? Can't live with them, can't live without them, but you got to love them. Okay? got to love them. What does that mean? Paul is saying that if you want to know what loving your wife looks like, look to Jesus. Look at how he loved his bride, the church. And so he loved her, and then it says he gave himself up for her. Sacrificial love. The atonement of Jesus Christ is the prime example of how he has loved his bride. And so what Paul is saying is, guys, sacrifice yourself. Sacrifice yourself. I had the privilege of uh, driving back from a Red Sox Rays game with one of my good friends. And we were talking a little bit. He was engaged at the time, and now he's married. And, uh, and he asked me this question. Is loving my wife supposed to, my future wife supposed to hurt so much? And I said, yes. It feels like dying. Why wouldn't it? Christ died. And when we, when we forsake our own agenda, it feels like we're going to die because we're afraid we're not going to get our own way. And the authority that we have been given by God over in our families is not so we get our own way. It's quite different from that. Guys, we are meant to die for our wives and for our children out of love for them. As painful as that is. His bride, I mean, his goal was to make his bride beautiful for himself. So it's that. To make her blameless, perfect, holy. What do we expect? We expect our wives to go and make themselves beautiful and holy, right? Get thee to the gym, woman. Or get thee to the fashion store. Or get thee to the hairdresser. Or get thee to the whatever. No. Paul is saying that we are to make our wives beautiful. Spiritually. She needs your help to grow in grace. He talks about nourishing. Just as you nourish your body, Paul says, you you are to nourish your wife just as Christ also nourishes the church that he cherishes. And so part of how we nourish our wives is that, that water of the word. Of course, the imagery there is the, is the purification bath 
uh, for the, the brides before they get married. You know, they're getting ready to get married and they get the purification bath so they're clean for the hubby. Okay? We wash our wives with the water of the Word to cleanse their hearts. She needs the ministry of the Word in her life not to criticize and attack her. I'm not talking about, well, dear, I read in my Bible this morning that you're supposed to do this. That's not what is in view here. What is in view here is, see, honey, the promises of God. See, honey, where I failed you, I'm sorry. See, honey, what God has done for us. And so this can take place in many different forms. Sometimes we think it has to happen in the forms of a, a couple's devotion. My, mar- my wife and I were married a little late in our lives, and we were pretty established in our patterns, and she is a morning person, and I am not. So by the time I get up, she's usually had her time with God in the Word and prayer. So it doesn't look like us sitting around together at the table and studying God's Bible, to, the, the Bible together. But what it looks like is, me going to her and talking about, I'm wrestling with this through the sermon text. Or, honey, I read this today. You might find it interesting. And, you know, that's sort of my way, how I found it helpful to wash her with the water of the word. And so don't think it is calling you guys to, now you have to have a Bible study with your wife every day. But it does mean that you need to engage your wife with the scriptures on a consistent basis somehow in some form. That, that you are to be concerned and active in your wife's spiritual life. You are to be leading in the home spiritually. Again, happy Father's Day, guys. So, we are not to use our position to selfishly get our way. I, you know, the World Cup, it's everybody's radar, probably except mine. Um, Bill's excited about the, the World Cup. And I, I read this story, sort of incidental to the World Cup, and it was really bizarre. Uh, and it was about a man in Africa who changed the channel to the World Cup. He got his own way, so he thought. He forced his will upon the family, so he thought, until they beat him to death. The sad irony, that's not irony. The sad part of the story is that he changed it from a religious station. He turned off some churchy thing. I don't know what kind of religious thing it was, so I'll just say churchy thing. It could have been false teaching, I don't know. But to the World Cup and his family killed him. Sort of the other way around. When we exert our own way to selfishly get our way, and what we, we do is we kill our families, guys. Little step by step, little by little, this is what, what we can do, and we don't want to do that. Love them. We use our position to personally and passionately pursue her well-being, to pursue passionately the well-being of the family. Okay? And so the Spirit works in men, enabling them to love their wives consistently and sacrificially. Let's talk to the last part of this quickly. Is that there's also the reality of Spirit-empowered forgiveness, which rests in the sufficiency of Jesus' work. Why is that important? 
Ephesians 1.7 talks about how Christ shed his blood to redeem us, and it, and it defines that redemption in terms of forgiveness of sin, and it's far more than that, but it includes that. Okay? The reality is, is that sin dissolves the bond of any relationship. And in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is talking about the relationship between us and God, but it also applies to the relationship between us and one another. Okay? And so sin dissolves the bonds of any relationship, and it's particularly marriage. When there's a struggle for control within a family, it pulls the family apart. It, dissol- it begins to dissolve the bond. If there's not the sacrificial love that needs to be present in the family, guess what? It dissolves the bond. It makes it difficult for the wife to respect her husband. Oh, we've got to deal with that. And the only way to deal with it is the way that Jesus dealt with our relationship with God. Forgiveness. Without forgiveness, sin will make marriage unlivable. How many of you guys have seen that show, Hoarders? Only a couple people. Wow. Hoarders are people who can't throw anything away. Okay. Everything. And so what happens is usually that, since they never throw anything away, dirt and filth and creatures begin to creep up within the home and make a very uninhabitable environment for everyone but the hoarder. Because the hoarder loves his hoard more than he hates the things that come with it, the stink and the filth and the dirt and the critters. And it drives people away. Where there is no forgiveness, the the, the house will become like a hoarder's house. It will become unlivable and drive people away. You have to take out the trash. That's what forgiveness really is, in some sense. Taking out the trash so that we can live there and be healthy. And we can only do this as we rest in His redemption. Only as we see that His cross is sufficient for our sin are we able to say it's also sufficient for their sin and extend them forgiveness and to seek their forgiveness. The Spirit works in us to point us to that sufficiency. As J.I. Packer talks about, the Spirit is like a floodlight shining on Christ that we might see Him more fully. The Spirit is not concerned about getting attention for Himself, but pointing us to Jesus. And one thing He does is He points us to the sufficiency of Christ's work so that He also then enables us to apply it where it's needed, to apply it to that lack of sacrificial love that took place yesterday, to apply it to that struggle for control that took place last week and took three days. And we're not sure how it turned out, aside from we're still mad at each other. Okay? That's what the Spirit applies the work of Christ to in our marriages, is those places that have been broken through our selfishness and our need for control. We are able to cancel that debt precisely because we have been given the fullness of blessing in Jesus Christ. We don't forgive as debtors. We forgive as enriched people. I'm going to steal and adjust a Tim Keller illustration of this. 
Deb's car, the alternator died. So let's imagine for a moment that Deb borrows one of my vehicles. Okay? Borrows a car from me. And, you know, her car can't get fixed for a while, but she has something very important to do. And in the course of doing that, the car gets trashed. There's an accident. One of those red light guys comes through and T-bones Deb, and she's safe and everything, but the car is destroyed, and the guy didn't have insurance, so I'm out a car. Forgiving her debt to me is going to be hard. You wrecked my car, woman! If I have 15 cars, if I'm Jay Leno, it's pretty easy to say, you know, yeah, my granddam, who cares? I'm not worried about it. If I have an abundance of vehicles, it's no big deal. But if that is the vehicle that I use to get to work every day, which it is, forgiving becomes much more difficult. We don't have the resources to forgive. We tend to think we're in that situation, but we're actually in the situation of Jay Leno because Christ has enriched us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, one of which is grace. And so though they may hurt us deeply and greatly, and though the the debt may be huge in our own eyes, it is small in the eyes of Christ and in light of what He has given us. We have the power to forgive. We just have to want to, which is only what the Spirit can produce in us. So, anyway. Redemption changes the whole equation of marriage. It changes it from Pat Benatar's love as a battlefield into something far better. Jesus doesn't just restore us as individuals by His grace, but He also restores our marriages to what God intended them to be. And so husbands love their wives like Jesus loves the church. Wives live under the authority of your husbands as Christ, uh, sorry, as the church does with Jesus. And as we do this, we begin to create a God-ordained picture of the gospel. Why don't we pray? Father, I pray for the marriages that are here. And to some degree, all of them have been tainted by the fall. And so I ask for your spirit to be at work in the hearts of of those spouses to see not where their spouse has failed, but to see where they have failed. I pray for repentance to come upon us in our marriages. I pray that your spirit would point us to Christ and the sufficiency of his work, to point us to Christ and what he has done for us as his bride, that we would not lose hope. I pray that you would be at work in each of these marriages, changing them from the inside out by changing the hearts of the people involved. That they would become more and more like you have intended them to be. So that the gospel is portrayed before the eyes of people around them, including their kids, especially their kids. Father, I pray for the the men and women in this congregation who are not married right now. I ask that you would begin that process of of working in their hearts to help them to understand the, the greatness of what it is they seek. So that when they enter into this covenant, they would be more prepared 
They have a greater vision for their marriage than just a friend, a lover. But they would see Christ in the church. So be gracious to us as we reckon with these words you have written for our benefit in the weeks to come. And may we come here often on our own to be reminded of what it is you have done, are doing, and will do through your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.